You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Thou nature art my goddess. To thy law my services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom? How are you, Nick? Jeez. That's I'm a very bit well. of Shakespeare. Uh, yeah, thank a you, little Shakespeare. Bit of Shakespeare. Thank you. Which play? Uh, that was King Lear, Edmund. And I still remember learning that f- from 30 years ago. There you go. How are you, mate? I'm pretty good. We're still in lockdown. <laughs> hey, if people are listening to this in 2021 and we're still in lockdown. <laughs> oh, no. oh, my God. Oh. Let's hope not. Now, for those keen listeners who might have already got stuck into a previous episode mm. by uh, with Gab Bell, mm. six-year plan. That's what she works on, rolling six-year plan. How would you feel? And that might give comfort to a lot of people. Six-year plan. Six-year plan. How would you feel, Blake, if mm. you only had certainty for the next three months ahead for you and your family? Yeah, I think I'd feel relatively uneasy and in fact uh this week's guest matthew hetherington triple threat probably a quadruple threat he is singer dancer actor what's the next one podcaster no musician oh is that part of singing oh no it's not because he's a he's a musician plays a mean set of drums oh there you go yeah I reckon there's a, a millions and millions and millions of people across the globe that as kids, teenagers, thought to themselves, I am I'm going to be an actor, I'm going to be a singer, I'm going to be famous. And there's a, there's a bunch of people out there that have gone and pursued that career. And uh, some of them, like Matt, it's a lifelong pursuit of that passion and I love this story I absolutely love it because Matt has a special ability to to do what he does and has pursued it and he hasn't been able to have a six-year goal it is amazing because he hears no a lot he gets told no you are not successful in this application loads and loads it's the equivalent of applying for a job which is clearly what it is yeah every week Yep. And you're just hoping and hoping and one job will be better than the next. Maybe it won't be. You get into a room and you're auditioning for a musical where you're just going, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm here, to then possibly never hearing about it again or you fall into something else. Um, quite a lifestyle with a family as well. All right, here he is. For your entertainment, put your hands together. Episode number 11. It is episode number 11. And by the way... Who are we sponsored by this week, Nick? Oh, good on you. A lifetime supply of hand sanitizer. I was going to say, that's handy. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to pick up our conversation with Matt as he's on a plane with his family on the way back to Australia. Here's Matt.
let's dial the clock back a few months and um, you're sitting on a plane to come home with Melissa and the kids, walking away from a life in the States that you've invested six, seven years in, in, uh, in your life. Think, take us through your thinking on, you know, what am I leaving and what am I walking back into? Well, you know, whenever I have sat on a plane over the last six years, heading from the States to Australia or Australia to the States, which I have done 40 plus times, I have never had the thought of like, what am I leaving? What am I going to? Because I never know what's going to happen. My life has always lived in small chunks of time, six months, three months to six months. That's about as much as I've been able to ever get my head around because I very rarely know what's going to come next. When I was sitting on that plane with Melissa and the kids, I was like, gee, it'd be good to get home. It'd be nice and warm because it was getting bloody cold in New York. Yeah. Christmas around the corner, fantastic, going to see family. But I did do that audition yesterday and I won't find out about that for a few days. So we may be back in New York next week. So I, I just didn't, I never know what's going to happen. And I've always lived that way. I don't necessarily like it being that way. It's just the way that it is. And I've yeah. just learned to accept it. It's part of what you do. Yeah, well, you have to be able, you have to be um, versatile and you have to be flexible, I think, to have any sort of success in the entertainment business. Because, you know, I think the only way you can really sustain any sort of vaguely satisfying life within the entertainment business is to be clear about taking responsibility over where you are and making decisions about, you know, what is going to make you happy. Because, see, the thing is for me, I've, I always need to be striving for something. I need to, you know, I, I've just always had that thirst to, to, to get to the next project, to maybe to have another experience, to have another connection, because this, that's what's my life has been like that for so many years. And the idea of just sitting down and staying in one spot for a long time kind of terrifies me. Hey, we'll get to some of those projects in a moment, but um, hey, let's go back to the start. So you're a you're a triple threat, threat triple threat, um, and all singing, all acting. I don't know about all dancing. You can let us know about that, but dancing. So was there a moment in your life where you decided, you know, this is what I'm going to do for the for the rest of my life? Uh, I, I don't remember ever deciding that that clearly. I mean, I, my dad's a jazz musician, so I grew up with jazz rehearsals going on around me from before I could walk. There were like musicians walking around drinking and smoking and playing instruments in the house from, you know, I've got photos of me literally in a bassinet in the corner while they're having a rehearsal. So growing up in that environment, it was always something that just felt natural. I didn't really think of anything else. The only thing I had to test was that my when I finished school, I, my mum said to me, you have to finish secondary school. So I finished year 12 at Caulfield Grammar because she worked her ass off to put me through a private school, she's, and she's amazing, is that she said, look, just have a crack at, you know, a normal sort of job just so you can know. It was just advice. So because I started school a year early and I turned 17 in the middle of year 12, so finish year 12 at 17, and a really immature and young 17-year-old, I was like, okay, I will. I'll so I worked at rural finance in the city for nine months, dressed up in a suit, just to convince myself that I was never going to work in that sort of environment again. Did it 
Did it take nine it months to convince that yourself? long for me to kind of feel as though I'd given it enough of a go to be justified to say I'm not doing that again. Yeah. And from from that time, what? where did you go after that? So you've come out of the, the rural finance place. You've gone, hey, this ain't for me. You what, Did you wander into an agent? Did you think I've got to get better at this craft or I've got to form a band or what did you do? Well, from the, the time I was in the last couple of years of high school, I was already singing in, and playing drums in, in rock bands. So that was an every weekend thing for me. Like when I was at rural finance, when I was finishing school, I was already doing gigs in pubs and clubs. So um, I, I just, you know, I would do that on the weekends. And then I thought, uh, well, the next big thing that happened for me was that when I decided I wanted to get some training, that's when I went to Rusden and did the uh, drama and dance course there, which was a, um, a Bachelor of Education because there was no sort of full-time acting with a music element, a course that, that was satisfying that I wanted to do at that time. There was, there was no place that I, I wanted to go to. So I went to Rusden for three years and then started doing my teaching rounds and realised just what a horrible job that is because as, <laughs> as like I was in my early 20s and I remember in my first placement I was at Glen Waverley High or something like that. And I stood up in front of the class ready to kind of teach my, my lesson. I was really nervous and only a couple of years older than the kids in the class. And this really rough looking kid in the front, he just looked at me and he said, dickhead. <laughs> the teacher looked at me like, this is what you got to deal with. And I just thought, oh, stuff this. Like, you know, I'd been, people have been telling me, oh, yeah, shit. And all of this stuff in pubs and clubs. But when you're in supposed to be the teacher, I'm like, I can't jump off the stage and grab this guy like I know what this is madness. So I'm like, no, I, I'm out of here. So that was another environment that I had spent some time in. Like I'd gone from rural finance. I'm like, I'm taking the suit off. I don't want to suit up nine to five. And I was like, okay, I'll, maybe I'll be a teacher. And I stand up in front of the class and I'm like, I don't think I want to be a teacher. I think I've got to be up on stage and I want to excite people. I want to affect people. It's always been about changing people's lives in a positive way. And I guess teaching would do that. And funnily enough, I've gone right around and that is something I'm doing a lot of now, but I wasn't anywhere near wise enough to teach at that, that stage of my life. For those of those just tuning in a little bit late, we're in the middle of the coronavirus lockdown too. Hopefully the last, but we could be up to 50 by the time you listen to this. And Matt is a homeschool teacher along with the rest of the, uh, the whole Victorian community. Um, so, you also went to Whopper, not to be confused with the famous Hungry Jack's Burger, who's now a sponsor. Thank you, Hungry Jack's. <laughs> Are they? That's new. Good. Um, was that the sort of grounding? Obviously, Rusden played some sort of role in some sort of part of your education and some grounding. Uh, what, what is Whopper, for those who don't know, and how did that start uh, paving a path for you to succeed in the industry? Well, Whopper is the Western, Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts which is located in Mount Lawley in Western Australia or in Perth. And uh, I actually went there because after years of singing in pub bands, I had ruined my voice. I had nodules and I'd had an operation on my throat to cut nodules out of my vocal cords. And I thought, I need to learn how to sing properly. But I don't just want to sing. I want to act. And I like the idea of dancing, although I have never considered myself like a dancer, dancer. But I do like moving. I like using my body to tell a story and um, 
it sounds weird outside the realms of the acting world, but that is the terminology that we use, using your body to tell story. Um, so when I went to WAPA, I, I had classical training from an opera teacher who I had a fantastic relationship with because she thought I was, you know, we, we got along really well and she saw a lot of potential in me, but she said, you're a terrible singer, but we're going to have a fantastic three years working and getting you to become a great singer. And uh, that is kind of what happened. It was amazing. But I, I didn't go to WAPA until I was, I turned 24 in my first year, which was, um, it was funny, you know, it was, I was so young when I was in high school, but at 24, I was a bit older than a lot of the people um, that typically go to uni, but it was the perfect age. I'd worked a bunch of stuff out. I was able to focus on my craft and uh, being away on the other side of the country was kind of isolated enough to feel confident that I wouldn't be distracted by the weekend gigs and you know because a lot of people drop out of those courses because they just get work or they get a gig in something and they leave before they finish their training but I'm really thankful that I did finish those three years and uh, I, I got a huge amount out of that I met some amazing people and developed some skills in a way that still serve me today. For those of um, our listeners that are you know my age Nick not your age you know 50 Odd would remember um, that TV, the American TV show called Fame. Was it like Fame? Like we, you, you know, head down to the cafeteria, jump up on the table, rip out a couple of tunes, yep. eat a burger. And- it really was. Like it was that fantastic. It was next to the Conservatory of Music. So you had all of the people learning their instruments and then you had these actors and dancers and singers. And so the par- you imagine the parties. I mean, my Lord, it was just out of control in the best possible way. Um but yeah, a whole, a whole bunch of people that have come from all around the country and even some people overseas uh, in a full-time course to work on their singing, dancing and acting, doing ballet classes at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. I can still remember putting on my tights and turning up for class every week uh, and then getting opera lessons from my singing teacher and then doing amazing, you know, full-scale musical productions I mean, it was just paradise for someone that loved being on the stage. It was just the most incredible environment. Do you ever bring the tights out anymore on a, you know, special occasion or? Every day, pretty much. I just wear them. <laughs> He's got them on now. Yeah. Lock, lock down attire. You should wrap them around your head as a mask. Um, so you did that training at Whopper. Where to from there? Where did that take you? Well, I'd finished when I was 26 and then it was about, okay, it's time to get out into the business. And I'd had an agent before and a manager before I went to WAPA and they stayed with me and I stayed with them during that time, uh, throughout that time. So then it was just about auditioning for stuff. When I came out, the first four auditions I went for, I got all of those jobs and uh, I thought, oh, how easy is this? It's going to be fantastic. Do you remember remember the first one? The first one was... uh, to play uh, the understudy to the lead in Sweet Charity, um, the musical. But I, I turned it down because I thought, oh, I, I don't want to be the understudy. I, even even though I just came out of drama school, I was like, no, no, I don't want to be the understudy. I want to be the actual guy. Very Gen Y of you. <laughs> yes, was it? I want it all now. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, I mean, I've, I've never... Uh, well, I did. I played one role as an understudy for a short period of time, and in fact, not long, long after that, I was offered the understudy to Brad to go to in Rocky Horror. But that was over in Hong Kong, where there was the handover of was happening in Hong Kong, which is very topical now. But uh, so the idea of going over to another city in for just for a couple of months, I thought, geez, that sounds like fun. So yeah, that was one of the jobs I did straight out of Whopper. 
And then the next job that I did when I came back was to be involved in the very first um, workshop of The Boy From Oz, which at that point was a very different um, show than it ended up becoming a huge, you know, success in Australia and then a massive success in the US. But yeah, I was, I was actually involved in the very first workshop of it. And in fact, I was um, staying with Nick Enright, who was the playwright for The Boy From Oz who I had met when I'd been at drama school and he'd cast me in the lead of this musical that, that he'd been commissioned to write with a um, colleague of his, David King. So Nick said, no, oh, you can stay in my spare room. So I was staying at, and anyone that knows anything about, you know, famous playwrights would know Nick Enright and the two actually to be staying at his place while he was writing the book for The Boy From Oz. I've always cherished that memory because just seeing how how he worked and how he would change masses of the story overnight. He would entertain guests. We'd sit around and have dinner and then we'd all go to bed. And then the next morning he'd come in with like 80 new pages. And it's like, how the hell did you do that? But he was incredible. It was a great, exciting thing to be a part of. Absolutely. Was there a moment thereafter that you felt like your career took off? No, I've, there's been a couple of things that have happened that have genuinely excited me and felt like I'd reached a certain level that I, that I would be able to be proud of down the track. But I've never really felt satisfied, like, oh, that's it, oh, I've made it. I've never really felt that. Because, I mean, I've always been painfully aware of the thousands of hours of hard work, you know, the, the knockbacks that you get, just to keep your head afloat. So, I mean, quite often you'll get a really great breakthrough in your career, which looks like it's going to open a whole bunch of doors for you uh, as far as the opportunities go in the business, but it doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with financial freedom. And there'll be other times where I'll get paid really well to do stuff, but it doesn't really push my career forward in a way that's meaningful. So I haven't managed to get the two of those two happening at the same time. And I don't know, I guess, you know, if you've got a lead role in a primetime US show and getting paid hundreds of grand an episode, well, then maybe you might go, I don't have to do much else. This could be it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I reckon that's a a good segue into into this thought, right? So, love to hear about you know a bit about why you do what you do, because you've just explained that it's hard to line up the um, the financial reward or the artistic satis- satisfaction of of what you do on a day to day basis. So, if if I you know think about some of the things that you've done, you know, from places like a Friday night at the Armadale, Armadale Hotel, the grain store on a Saturday night. I think you were in the first um, first ever edition of The Voice in Australia. Uh, you've performed in front of 100,000 people on grand final day. Uh, and I reckon you've performed at just about every you've, – you've made the dance floor go crazy at every A-list ball across at least Melbourne and Sydney, if not – across Australia. Tell us about a little bit about that moment just before you go on stage. What are you thinking? Well, I, I take my responsibility to have a positive impact on people's lives extremely seriously. Like that is really the reason why I do this. So uh, when I'm just about, I'm waiting for the show to start, I'm always really excited about the opportunity to create something special. 
And I, I have this idea in my head. It's like, what do I need to do over the next couple of hours or whatever it is to make everybody in this room tomorrow wake up and at some point tomorrow be like, oh, wow, what a great night. Wasn't that fantastic? So then, so that's it. That's why I have to do whatever it takes to create that experience for the people in the room. So as a result, I work with musicians that follow me and watch me closely because it's all up for grabs. You know, I often have event organizers saying, can you just send through the song list? And I'm like, sure, but I have no guarantee that that's what we'll play because it depends what the vibe of the room's going to be. We'll chuck songs in, whatever it takes. So it it's always been about living in the moment. That is the big thing for me. It's about living in the moment and being committed to affect people in a positive way and and listening and being aware enough to know what is happening, what's the energy in the room, how are people responding to this experience that's happening in real time. And I get this, I it's an exhilarating experience. I mean, I love to sing when I'm singing loud and singing rock music. And it's not just, it's not rock as in authentic rock, rock music, but I guess it's pop rock, but it's powerful, energy-filled music. And I mean, I I... It really feels like I'm riding a wave when I'm with the band and, you know, creating that vibe and seeing the whole dance floor jump up and down. It's, I mean, it is one of the most amazing um, places that's like my special place in my life. I, I, I love it. So that's why I've been doing it for such a long time. And do you have presence of mind to be in that moment? Um, and perhaps this is, you know, so you 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 won a Helpman Award for um, lead role in the Full Monty. So you're on stage. Do you have the presence of mind to deliver what you need to deliver as the character, but also at the same time to be thinking and looking out at the audience, thinking, "Fucking, this is amazing." Yeah, because they they go hand in hand. Like you know, this notion of separation of performer from from self, or, or I, I've just never really understood that. Anybody that's portraying a character, if they're, no one fully transitions or, or transforms into another character. All they're offering is their version of what they think the construct of that character is. And it's actually no different than it is when you go to your girlfriend's place and meet their parents. It's like, what do I need to do in the moment to kind of do this successfully? And you call on all the things that are necessary. I mean, of course, the differences are, yes, you get told this is where you got to stand, this is what you're wearing, this is what you're going to say. But outside of that, which is just like a no-brainer for anyone in the acting business, everything else is up for grabs. How do I live in this? How do I live with authenticity in this moment? How do I connect? How do I listen? How do I receive what I'm getting in the room? So when I'm doing a musical where I'm told exactly what to do, in inverted commas, versus a band gig where everything's up for grabs, in theory, the experience is almost the same because it's moment by moment. It's like, is it authentic? Is it real? Do I say these lines from how I feel now in this moment? So I always have that experience. It's one of the joys of my life. I can manage to keep you know, have a moment of celebration. Like this is, this is, I feel euphoria in this moment. It's, it's, this is a beautiful connection. There's something real happening now. And it's actually that, that stuff is what drives me. That stuff is what gets me over the, that hump of resistance or fear sitting on a plane. What's going to happen in, when I get to Australia, it's like, well, I tell you what's going to happen is that I'm going to have a real experience and I'm going to do what it takes to get myself into an environment where I can affect people's lives in a positive way. 
And that's like, then we'll just see. I'll keep my ears open and my senses open to receive the opportunities as they present themselves. It could be just a comment by someone. Oh, I heard you need an acting coach. Or I heard someone's dropping out of a show and you may need someone to step in. Whatever it is. If you think like that and you're committed um, to make a positive impact on people's lives, well, then I don't think you really have much to worry about. Love it. And talking about moments... Talk to us about that moment uh, when you turned the chair. Was it one chair or how many chairs did you turn in the voice? Oh, well, look, I turned one chair, but, I mean, I could talk for an hour about the actual experience, which I know we don't have that long. When you've been on the show as a contestant, which I was, on the first season, and then you watch the show on the telly, you realise the experience of how they actually record it and then what ends up going to air are two very different things. Yeah. So, where, so I have to tell it from my side because it's kind of interesting. The thing is that I wonder if I can do this in two minutes. Anyone that's interested in the show or has seen it in passing might find this interesting. So they pick about 180, 150 people to, that are going to audition for the blinds and then they get everyone together. Well, this is what they did in season one. I don't know what they do now, but I'm guessing it's about the same. Yeah. And they say to everyone – congratulations, big group of people. Someone in this room is going to win the voice this year. And everyone looks around like, oh, yeah, it's probably me. Or it's not going to be him. Or, oh, wow, she looks good. Whatever it is. And then they say, so this is how it's going to work. We're going to have people singing all through day one. And we'll have like um, 30 people on day one. Then we'll have 30 people on day two, 30 people on day three, 30 people on day four. And so we will tell you tomorrow what day you're going to be singing but the reality is that there's only so many places. So once all the spots are filled, that's it. So if you haven't get a chance to sing, well, then maybe you can come back next year. We'll see what happens. So it's like, okay. So you're thinking, gee, I hope I would like to be kind of towards the front end of this. Yeah. Because I can, there's a whole bunch of people in this room that are not even going to get to sing, let alone win. So then I find out that I'm last on day three. Oh. And I'm like, Shit. <laughs> I thought, okay, well, a whole bunch of people are going to have to be unsuccessful for me to even get a shot at it. So I I got there in the morning at 7 a.m. on the day of the third day, all dressed up in the gear that I'm going to wear when I step out onto stage, and I didn't actually step through the doors until 11.45 p.m., and in that day, like the nervous energy, just sitting around waiting, is it when's it going to be? Because they don't tell you. Oh, it'll. They won't. They don't say. Oh, it won't be until late tonight. It's like, can everyone please come and stand and wait in the waiting room? Or now we're going to move you to the next room, and now we're going to start. A few people get called out, and you're never quite sure exactly they're going to do it in order because you just don't know what's going on. And it's season one, so they're kind of working out what they're doing as well. Yeah. Yeah. So when I stepped through the door, the th two people before me had both turned chairs and there were two spots left in the whole competition and I was the last singer of the night. And I was like, I got no chance. Like they're not going to they're not going to have they're not going to give me one of those two spots. No, there were two spots left. They're, they're not going to give me one of those two spots and then have a whole day for one spot tomorrow. Plus the last two People have turned. It's like, and it just seemed to be that it would be like someone turns a chair, then a couple of people don't turn a chair, then a couple of people don't turn, then someone turns a chair, but they didn't have like a sequence of three chair turns. So anyway, 
But I'm always up for it because, as I said, I'm excited about the opportunity. And I remember walking up onto the stage and I was looking at the backs of the chairs and, and thinking to myself, how's like see the names, Seal and Joel and Delta and Keith. Uh, and I'm like, this is such a strange thing. So I did a little gag so that the audience would laugh so that I could sort of relax a bit. I checked that my fly was done up just being a smart ass, right? <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so then the song starts and I'm saying I must have gone wild for that. <laughs> well, they kind of laughed and then the, when the, the judges were kind of going, what's happening? I'm like, why are they laughing? You know? So then when the song started, they do condensed versions of the song. This only goes for about, oh, it's like a minute 15 or a minute 20. So I start the song. And by, just by the way, I fully expected, like I didn't go there without expecting to turn chairs. So I wasn't like, oh, gee, I hope they do. It was like, no, 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 this is definitely going to happen. I, like I've always kind of had that confidence. I'm, I'm prepared to deal with it not going, but I'm not going to be meek about it, right? Yeah. But then I'm thinking, geez, it's stacked up against me. Like, what? It's probably highly unlikely. So I'm going to have to work really hard for this. <clears throat> and I don't, sometimes I don't know quite where that bravado comes from, but it's just you kind of build that re- resilience once you know. I guess it's a bit like stepping into a boxing ring. You know, yeah, I guess that people that step into a boxing ring probably are a bit nervous, but when they step in, it's like, well, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna on purpose get punched in the head. So I guess I better do what <laughs> I need to do. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I start singing the song, no one turns. I get halfway through the song, no one's turned. I get three quarters of the way through the song, no one's turned. And I'm sensing, I know that now we're starting to get to like the last 15 seconds of it. What were you singing? And I was singing the song Evie, which is the Stevie Wright song. Evie, Evie, let you hang down. And at the end it says, come on, baby, come on, baby. But instead of saying that second baby, I went, come on, baby, come on, Delta. So I scream out Delta's name and she just goes, turn your chair. She smashes the button, the chair turns around, the song finishes two seconds later and I'm on the show. That's it. Wow. <laughs> so that just that moment to go, here's a last ditched effort. Yeah. Worked. I knew that she had a spot and that Keith had a spot uh, and I was like, uh, I'm going to go down swinging. I'm not letting this go without, a, you know, so I literally asked her to, to, to press the button. <laughs> she did. What did you learn from her whilst you're on the show? Well, I tell you, well, I, the one thing that I learned, I mean, having done this for quite a long time, I, I didn't go on it trying to learn how to sing, but the yep, experience yep. that I got from her turning her chair w- was, um, I mean, it's, it's multifaceted. The things that I that I learned from it, being in a prime, like a real, like that was the highest highest rating TV show in Australian history at that point, and it was so big that like the day after the blinds or the week after the blinds, uh, if I went to a shopping centre, people would run up and ask for my autograph. Like it was genuine sort of like fame out of nowhere sort of thing. And it was, it was kind of lovely. Everyone, no one said anything particularly nasty to my face. They said said terrible things online, but they didn't say things actually to my face. I'm like (laughs) young kids coming up and signing things for them. It was just awesome. It was, it was really cool. So I had that experience and then I'd, I'd be doing Delta a disservice not to um, say that she was really lovely when I ended up being off the show. Um, She asked me to go and sing with her the state of origin at Marvel Stadium in front of 35,000 people and 
Then um, when I was in LA, she has a house in LA and she invited Melissa and I over there and we had a couple of barbecues. And so look, she was, she was lovely. So, I mean, I learned that it's what you think these shows are, they aren't. And I learned that the voice is entertainment. It's not really a talent show. Um, and I try and say that respectfully. It's, sound, it's hard to say this stuff without sounding like sour grapes, but it's just not, I was a little disillusioned with what it actually is based, you know, compared with what I kind of hoped that it would be as far as song choice mm. and that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I've learned that of course, of course it is. It's a multi-million dollar production and they need to make it interesting. And it was like, of course, the backstory is super important. And I just didn't think enough about that. To me, it was more yeah, about your story. skills on stage rather than how terrible your life had been up to that point. Right. So that was the 2012 edition of The Voice, being the first. Um, a couple of years later, you pack the family up and head over to the States and spend six, six years there uh, up until uh, obviously last uh, November when you came home. Um, firstly, how different is it to Australia and is everyone in LA just a wannabe actor? Uh, everyone in LA is nearly a wannabe actor. Like... It, it, it really is the chances of someone to say, oh, hi, I'm living in L.A. and I'm an actor, like that does happen more than you would actually think that it does in a city with that many millions of people. But one of the gifts that I had was that uh, I became a dad for the first time not long after I left The Voice in 2012. So when we went over to the States, because that we finally got our green cards, uh, we were kind of relatively new parents. So that enabled us to kind of, connect with a whole lot of like a whole different group of people when we're in the city and that is other new parents like and they're really different to actor types because they're it's like the opposite it's like i haven't got time i'm not available i can't just be worrying about my instagram i can't be staying out at parties till late so i met a whole bunch of really amazing people at playgrounds and different places in studio city and toluca lake in la uh I think that LA and Melbourne are really similar. A lot of people say that's not true, but in my experience, it is. Like, there's there's great diversity there. Um, I mean, the weather is magnificent. That's one thing that's different to Melbourne, but it's it actually offers a really friendly environment, and there's you can pretty much do anything that you want there. I mean, anything is on offer in LA. You can live in that bubble in the acting world, and it all, it all feels a little desperate to me in LA, but you can do that in Australia too, really, just a smaller circle of people. Uh, and that decision to um, pack up your life and go over there, like your wife, Melissa, is in the, the business as well, right? So was that your want and drive to further your career internationally or was that a collective thing? How, how did you arrive at that decision to do that? I'd always been fascinated with the, um, the, the entertainment, the culture, the fact that all of this stuff came from the States, that, that we were so influenced by the music from America and movies and, and I grew up listening to jazz music and, and um, so I was always fascinated with wanting to go there. And I do remember even when I was really young, I thought, gee, I'd love to go to America. I'd love to go and like be a part of creating all of this amazing music and, and, um, creating these amazing stories. So in the lead up to us actually going to get our green cards, we would head over there each year and just holiday and experience it. And, and just on the side, I might drop into a couple of auditions, even though you're not really supposed to, but I kind of would just to see what it was like. 
And then I was actually um, given an opportunity unexpectedly to go on tour in a lead role um, of a Broadway touring production, but I couldn't do it because I didn't have the right paperwork. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to get my green card and we're going to go back and do it properly. So we spent years doing that. In fact, seven years from the moment we applied for our green card to when we actually got it, it was almost to the date, seven years. Seven years. Yeah. And if, if I had known that it was going to take seven years, I would never have done that. It did, doesn't have to take that long. But it's a it's a hard slog to get it. Um, but we did get it and we thought, well, we've just become parents. So perfect. What a great time to leave Australia and go to another <laughs> yeah. country. Go and f- put, take this kid in, in an aeroplane for, I don't know, 30 hours or something. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, and the plan was to go to New York originally, but with Oscar being born and the fact you have to fly through LA, we thought, let's just stop in LA and see how it feels. And we ended up staying there for three years and loved it. And I've learned an enormous amount about my craft and about people. And, you know, being a first time parent and being separated from family and familiar environments, like it's in a, it's a really amazing experience you don't realize how much you take for granted with your surroundings and how they help you just kind of being able to drive through areas that you know and it kind of you know you feel a level of comfort but to be in a totally new city where it's like i don't even know if it's dangerous that way i don't know what which way is home and and you know what all of the staples and the supermarkets they just everything tastes different and everything's everything's just different and it's just so tiring but it's the experience is um, really special. At the end of the day, like it was super hard, but I'm really thankful for it. Is there a a moment throughout your life or your career that you've um, you've thought to yourself, "Holy shit, how did I get here?" Like, is it like have you just looked around and gone, like, "Oh my god, that is so and so," or I am doing so and so? Like, is there a moment? Or are there moments? Yeah, there have been a few moments. I guess that the the biggest one <clears throat> happened not long after I got to LA. Probably only been there for three weeks, and I got a um an audition to do a developmental workshop of Pretty Woman, the musical, based on the movie with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. And so I went and met this casting agent in her office, and I had to sing a cappella, which is without any backing just sitting in her office and the acoustics in the room were dreadful and anyone that's ever sung or needs to sing, especially for a living, those sort of things can make a really big difference in how you feel. Like, does it, is it echoey? Does it give you some nice sort of reverb to make the voice sound good? This was like a really dead sounding office building and it was in the middle of the day and here I am singing a song to this lady just sitting at there staring at me. And I'm also like a little bit like duck on the water on my legs underneath. It's like I'm in L.A. I'm in L.A. I'm doing these auditions. It's got to be my big break. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? But trying to look really cool at the same time, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I sang for her and she really loved what I did. And she said, you know what? We think you'd be perfect. So you're going to be meeting Gary Marshall um, next week. And I was like, you mean Gary Marshall is in? Gary Marshall, the director of Pretty Woman. Like, I didn't know that he was actually involved in it. She's like, oh, no, no, he's directing it. Yeah, he's directing the workshop. So you'll be, you'll be meeting with him uh, in his office. Now, that was a, an incredible moment for me because Gary Marshall, not only did he create Pretty Woman, not only did he discover Julia Roberts, but he also discovered Robin Williams and created the show Mork and Mindy. He created Happy Days. 
So he created the character of Arthur Fonzarelli and Richie Cunningham. And these are shows that I had grown up watching and adoring, like loving them. And I was going to go and meet this guy and play the lead role in this new adaptation of this multi-successful, multi-million dollar successful uh, movie. So sure enough, the next week I turn up at Gary Marshall's office and I walk in and there he is. And I shake his hand and, and I sat down with him and within a few minutes we were reading the new script of Pretty Woman. And I was looking up at the walls of seeing pictures of like of a really crazy young Robin Williams or, or Ron Howard who played Richie Cunningham. And with their arms around Gary and I'm looking at him while he's looking at this absolutely gorgeous young girl who's playing Vivian, the Julia Roberts character. So I'm like, oh, this is surreal. There's this incredibly gorgeous LA actress. There's Gary Marshall. There's Robin Williams. It was mad. And in the week of rehearsals that we had, he kept calling me Richard by mistake. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he thinks that I'm Richard Gere. Like this is, it's just mind blowing. Yeah. That was a pretty awesome experience. And what happened? Like, did they develop that musical or they did it ended up becoming a broadway musical and ran for about a year on broadway the the next thing that happened for me which was equally as sort of strange it was not for a couple of years after that uh i got a call out of the blue from a director friend of mine jerry mitchell who met me when i did the full monty and this is where that's that full circle it's like opportunities can lead to other things and if you claim your moments and if you're in you're really in with both feet it can turn into other life-changing experiences. I met Jerry Mitchell when he came out to see the, the last week of rehearsals and then the opening night of the Full Monty because he had been the choreographer for the original Broadway production and they had given me the thumbs up to play the role in Australia. We really hit it off. Having the lead role in that had me working with those guys, Jack O'Brien, the director, and Jerry Mitchell, the choreographer. And they had both written letters for me for my green card application. And then Jerry had been given the rights to direct Pretty Woman the Musical because years later he'd become a Tony Award-winning director in his own right. Um, and he's since gone on to do Kinky Boots and he had done Legally Blonde and amazing successful shows. And so he calls me and it's Jerry Mitchell and he's like, oh, I'd like you to come and audition for the role of, um, what's his name? Edward in Pretty Woman the Musical. And I was like, this is kind of weird. I've already done that. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, I did the first workshop that Wayne Brady did. And I didn't mention that before. Wayne Brady was in the workshop as well, the guy from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Like it was just all all sorts of madness. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, this is it. This is all the stars aligning. I'm going to head over to New York. I'm going to audition for Pretty Pretty Woman the Musical. I'm going to be perfect for it and I'll end up on Broadway. I'll win a Tony Award and that'll be my career. I will have ticked it off. So he gives me the time. He sends me the music of the brand new songs written by Brian Adams. So I'm learning songs written by Brian Adams. And I'm also singing Summer of 69 in my head because I'm still doing band gigs. And I'm like, I'm going to meet Brian Adams. This is kind of crazy. <laughs> Do what you want. <laughs> that would be amazing. So I fly over there in the morning. I get a morning audition. I'm still on LA time. I had this horrendous experience the night before in, the, in an Airbnb from hell where they accused me of smashing the TV. It was this, all, it was this madness. So I virtually got no sleep. I walked into the room. My voice was shot. And within two minutes, I totally screwed the audition. I just sucked in the most magnificent way. And he was so lovely. He's like, thanks for coming. 
And I was just like, when you hear that, you, yeah. it's like getting punched oh. in the face. It is the worst. Oh. When they're nice to you about it, I mean, I would so prefer if they just went, you're terrible, get out. But they don't. Mm. They're like, thank you so much. It's so great to see you. Like, and you just want to throw up, you know, it's yeah. awful. So didn't happen. Screwed it up. So there was a no. How many no's have you had <laughs> across the journey? Like, like no, 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 no. Yep. No, 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 no. Yep. Like, how do you... How do you keep doing what you're doing when you you constantly face hurdles, rejection? What do you think? What what's go what goes through your head? Well, what I always I, I, I developed this sort of approach to my work and my career at a really young age, and I say this to people when I'm coaching them now, and it doesn't really matter what industry you're in, I say you cannot hinge your happiness and level of satisfaction in your life based around what happens for you professionally. You just you just can't do it. You don't have enough control over that environment. And even if you do have immense success, it is difficult for you to share that in any meaningful way with your family. If you are so committed and so sort of preoccupied with succeeding business-wise or professionally, more often than not, and I, this has been my experience, a lot of people that do that have disconnected in a, pretty scary way from the people that are really close to them. So I, so my happiness and satisfaction, my desire to keep going has never been attached to one thing. So I just have to keep doing my best. I have to try and learn from the knockbacks, try not to take it personally, which is really hard because when you really want them and you can feel how it's, you just know how it's going to change your life because sometimes they even tell you what they're going to pay you if you get it. You know, and you know how long you're going to be in work and who you're going to be working with. And it's just, it can be heartbreaking not to get some of these opportunities when they come around because they do come out of nowhere. Uh, and sometimes they take a long time to circle around the really big ones. You just, you got to remember why you're in it and, and remember that it can, the next amazing one could be tomorrow. So you just have to trust and you have to live with integrity and you need to be able to look at the yeah, I mean, this is this is the truth of it for me. I need to be able to look at the people that are closest to me in the eye and know that they know that I respect them and I'm here for them and that we're all in it together. You know, so I found that approach to life has enabled me to be really great in my work because it keeps me grounded and it also allows me to deal with the knockbacks, which invariably come, but they don't knock me over. Sometimes they knock me down, but they don't really knock me over. Um, yeah. And, and the other thing is that if you have a whole bunch of really awful no's, when a good yes comes along, like that Gary Marshall moment, yeah, like it's enough to bring you to tears with joy. Like it's so, yeah. it's such a magnificent feeling. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of up for that. I'm up for that trade off as long as I can stay trusting enough that something great's around the corner. What a prophetic, um, way to see things. Hey. Little bird, we do we do some serious research on the Doolanders, um, and a little bird tells us that you're responsible for instilling a whole lot of confidence um, in another triple threat from Australia's singing ability. Take us, and and this harks back right back to your Whopper days, doesn't it? Well, it does. This is kind of this is one of my um, favourite stories, I guess. 
but I've always been a little reluctant to tell it in any sort of public arena. But having said that, the man that we're talking about, he actually told a thousand people at this big concert that he asked me to go and sing with him at. So from that point on, I thought, oh, great. This is up for grabs. I can start telling people because I've wanted to tell people this story for years. When I got to Whopper in 1994, I met a very handsome uh, and sort of ridiculously charismatic and young Hugh Jackman. And like it was so obvious even back then that he was just going to be some sort of success. He hadn't done anything at that point, anything. Yeah. He just had this air about him, like super nice and likable and, you know, all the stuff that he has gone on to be uber successful with was present in a really authentic way with him as a, you know, mid-20s. Um, so by the time we had finished, uh, I was a couple of years behind him. He was in the acting course. I was in the musical theatre course. So, But we kind of became mates. I don't know quite how it happened. I think... He had seen me singing and he kind of liked that I was, I don't know, he must have, I don't know, something about the way I was doing what I was doing that he found appealing. And at that point, he didn't really sing much at all, at all, which is kind of crazy um, because I get a call uh, not long after he had finished at WAPA and he'd immediately had success. He'd done Corelli, this TV series, and uh, was really, everyone wanted to get a piece of Hugh Jackman straight out of drama school, like, oh, this feels like the next hot thing. And they were right, as we know, right? Anyway, so he calls me and he's like, Maddie, I've been asked to go and sing these songs at this corporate event. I, just, I don't know what I'm going to sing. So can you can you come and do it with me? Can you help me pick some songs and sing with me on stage? And um, I remember I was walking down the street in Sydney. I was like, um, yeah, sure. Yeah, no problem. Like, whatever. So we got together and I suggested maybe a bit of this and a bit of that. And we did some crooning songs and we came up with some duets, you know. Um, we did Lily's Eyes from The Secret Garden and we did You're Nothing Without Me from City of Angels and a few other things. So then we did like six or seven gigs together and um, it was, you know, that was, he he'd said to me, I, I'd never really, um, he just didn't know how to put it together and how he could, trust that that he was a good enough singer and that he would have, you know, the skills necessary to do this thing successfully. And the thing that kind of makes me laugh about it is that years later, and in fact, it still happens to this day, I'll go in for an audition in America and people will say to me, you know, you could be the next Hugh Jackman. <laughs> and I always want to say, well, it's funny you should say that. But, but of course, you know, I'm like, yeah, right. Okay, mm -hmm. sure, maybe. But you know we've stayed in touch. We're good friends, and and he um, he's got he's given me great words of advice. In fact, I'll tell you one other Hugh story while I'm here. Yeah. Um, I had an audition to go back over to New York when I was in LA to audition for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the musical. They wanted to have the Broadway replacement of the role of Freddie, which is the Steve Martin role, which I ended up playing a couple of years later and and really successfully in Australia. But that wasn't happening at this point. Anyway, so this was a big audition, same director, Jack O'Brien, same choreographer, Jerry Mitchell. I'm back for Jack and Jerry in New York to audition. Um, so I called Hugh up because he was in LA at the time. And I said, oh, mate, I've got this big audition. And I just, how do you not stuff it up? How do you, how do you, how do you manage to make the most out of the opportunity? Did he say don't smash the television in the Airbnb or...? 
Well, he said something even more profound than that. He said, you know, it's funny you should say that because I was on set with Michael Caine today doing that movie that he made with Michael Caine. What is it? The, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it. It's like The Illusionist or something like that. He said, I just happened to be talking to Michael Caine today about his experience on Dirty Rotten Scandals, the movie with Steve Martin. And he said that that was the most fun that he had ever had. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding. You've been chatting to Michael Caine today. Now I'm talking to you about me going over to be the Broadway replacement in the musical version of it. Like, it's just crazy. That's just such an LA thing to happen. And then Hugh said to me, he's like, it's pretty simple for me. When I'm standing in the wings, about to go out onto stage to do something significant, he said, I have doubts too, absolutely. And that was one of the amazing things to learn that even people that are, you would appear, you would think wouldn't have any reason to be self-conscious or to be concerned yeah. about being successful or not. He still has those doubts, things that creep in like, am I, am I right? Am I the right person for this? And he said, all I'm going to do is make sure that when I'm done, or however long it takes, whether it's a three minute audition or a three hour job, you know, a corporate event or something, I'm just going to make sure that at the end of it, I'm not going to say that I didn't give it my all. I didn't at least have a crack because that's the one thing that it certainly resonated for me. I was like, yeah, that's the same for me. It doesn't actually matter whether you get it or not, as long as you have a crack, because the thing that I've always been terrified about is giving up and not trying and, and being meek and afraid. So it was really amazing to hear that from him. He's become a really great friend and I'm so proud of his success. And in fact, it's so immense that today I was reading an article and who knows, these things could be dated quickly in a podcast, but as it stands, he's under consideration to be the next James Bond for crying out loud. I mean, that's how right. big his fame is. And not just like James Bond the musical, like I do, but like actually James Bond, as in the James Bond. So good luck to him. Yeah. So we are in the middle of the lockdown, as you mentioned earlier. When the world opens up again, what do you do next? Well, I think that between now and then, the world is going to change significantly. Uh, I have my eye set on doing similar things. People are going to be wanting to go out and dance and have fun and connect and um, be moved, you know, Um so my line of work is primed to play a, a, um, a really key role in a, giving people the environment to do that. But the other thing is that I've, from this experience, we've realized that so many people are now needing to learn how to connect online, like how they can have some sort of genuine and satisfying interaction by looking at a video screen. So my years of, of, um, you know, working in the world of, of connection and communication, and storytelling has me um, kind of really excited about being able to help people um, get in touch with who they are and allowing that to be present when they are actually talking to a screen, both professionally and personally. So I got my life coaching certification last year. So being able to help people and make a genuine difference in people's lives you know, as I said that before with my performing, it really is why I do what I do. But now to be able to do it through conversation and, you know, by asking questions and and hearing what people have to say about their feelings and offering some ideas as to 
you know, why we think the way we do and, and, uh, the patterns that we have and taking responsibility over the moment and making a decision about, you know, what they want to happen or what environment they want to live in. You know, that's the, it's all been magnified. It's been amped up and there is a lot of anxiety at the moment. So the lockdown gives storytellers and, and entertainers and now communicators for me a great opportunity to be able to help people both on off stage and on in a meaningful way. I'm really excited. Cool. And um, last question. Your advice to uh, someone that's sitting in a finance company somewhere who <laughs> who thinks they should be out there acting or um, to somebody who has not pursued their passion and is doing something different. What, what, have you, what advice do you have for those people? Well, I think that you have to go for it, you know. As far as we know, well, we only have one life. Some believe that there are others. And if you believe that, then I guess you could, you know, bide your time. But if you are like me and you believe that there is only one, then then it's about making a decision. Okay, what am I prepared to accept? What sort of experience do I want to have? Now, what I've found is that people are often so tied up in their current circumstances, they're so knotted up that they can't see outside of what their experiences are day in, day out. So you need to give yourself an opportunity to just somehow just release from that, whether that's putting on some headphones and listening to music for 20 minutes, that and it can be whatever type of music that just kind of relaxes you, and then just dream. What would I do? What would my perfect life be? Where would I be living? Who would I be communicating with? You know, what would my feeling be when I woke up in the morning? So it is that basic for me. It's it's about people getting in touch with what it is that I want to do and then saying, what am I prepared to accept? How much am I prepared to compromise in this life? Because then if you answer those questions in a truthful way, then it actually becomes really easy to shift out of where you are, to get out of like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. It's like, well, then see what the compromise is and then ask yourself, am I satisfied with this compromise? And if the answer is no, it's like, well, then you have no choice. You have to just have a crack at it. So then if it comes to, but I don't have the skills, it's like everybody has the skills to be the world's best actor because these days they're not looking for people to transform. They're looking for authenticity. They're waiting for the person to walk in the door and there are roles for every single human out there to walk in and get. And the other thing is just quietly is that when people are casting TV shows, movies or anything, half the time they have no idea what they're really looking for. So if someone walks in and they're just being their authentic selves and they're open and they've got the lines and they're prepared to just put it out there, there's every chance they'll rewrite it and just write it around the way that they're hearing it. So that would be my advice. It's like, think about what you want, how much are you prepared to, prepared to compromise? And then you got to dream big because at the end of the day, like, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I reckon the worst that can happen is that you don't act, you don't, Take action. That to me is the worst. I reckon that is a great way to um, say thank you uh, for the sharing your story, your amazing journey. What I what I find is in, is absolutely inspiring is the way that you um, how you say 
have claimed your moments, right? Claimed your moments uh, not only within your career but uh, claimed the moments within your personal life as well. And I, I reckon there's, um, there's a whole lot of inspiration uh, in that for all of us. So, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on the Doolanders. And, uh, hey, Matt, we can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks, Blake. Thanks, Nick. That's awesome. I had a really great Thanks time. Up, Thanks for chatting. Jeez, I don't know, Blake. I don't know whether I could do it. Oh, I know you couldn't do it. <laughs> well, three months at a time. Well, hang on. For a start, you and I are going to sing in a minute. Uh, but I. I don't think you can sing, can you? Oh, actually, no. One of our earlier podcasts, you proved that you're not great, but we'll we'll have another crack at it. You can play a bit of guitar. Yeah, that's true. Going to get better in this lockdown. Yep. That's what I'm going to do. Dance? Can you dance? No. Not a dancer. Nope. Not with those thighs. Uh, <laughs> I have two left thighs. <laughs> I think there's a movie in that. Could be. My Left Thigh. Mm. Do you remember that movie, I My do. Left Foot? I, I do. Daniel Day-Lewis. Yep. Um, My brother and I used to practice that, you know, the, the wrestling they did. Leg wrestling. <laughs> did you? Do, you? do you remember the... I don't. We used to do it all I the don't. time. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, that's country life for you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what was the last bit? Musician? Dancer? <laughs> actor. Actor, yeah. You, I reckon you'd be pretty good at an actor. No. Wouldn't you? You're not. Oh, I have, but I blink a lot when I'm on uh, camera. <laughs> I don't know whether, I, whether my body thinks it's a threat and the camera is staring at me. I better blink just in case it. When did you realise? When did you re- when did you realise that in front of a camera you, that you were a um, excessive blinker? Uh, for work, I had a few video case studies done, mm. and I'm looking at myself going, "Gosh, my eyes bust dry out really quickly." <laughs> There's excessive blinking going on. So I don't think I'd be able to do a stare into the distance uh, that our man Matt Hetherington does. <laughs> no. Uh, for our listeners, I actually went to, to college with Matt and I too had the, the dream to tread the boards and pursue what Matt has done. Uh, so I have the utmost respect for what he has done over a 30-year period of time. There's not many people going around that can make a life and a living out of um, the arts and he's been able to do it. It's absolutely brilliant. Now, you and I are going to create a moment in Matt's career. (laughs) (laughs) Just go with me on this. So for our listeners, uh, once you've heard Matty, Matty's story, jump on a YouTube, check out him on The Voice singing Evie. Uh, but it goes nothing like this. Are you waiting for me to start? No, well, I need yeah. to get the words. All right. So uh, for your listening pleasure, Nick and I are going to just recreate that moment. You can go and check it out on YouTube when Matt – had the four chairs in front of him at The Voice singing Evie. Are you ready, Nick? No, if you want to skip ahead to the next episode, just do it. But 
You ready? No, let's do it. One, two, three. Come e- on. It- oh. <laughs> Thanks, Blake. We'll see you next episode. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick.